0: A lot of you in here today, I, I'm going to safely assume, and assumptions are dangerous, and I know they are, but a lot of you probably grew up around religion. You grew up in a home that uh, valued it. You know, uh, Some of you didn't. In fact, may, maybe many of you didn't, but there are a lot of you here and over in the chapel today that you grew up in a home that was religious, and that's, that's, a, that's a good thing. But at the same time, the the problem with religion is I, is, is in many ways uh, it can be it can take life when it when it should give it. And, and let me tell you what I, what I mean by that, not take life as in physically, but it can take your inner soul and heart because so often many of you grew up in houses like this where uh, did you ever have your, your mom or your dad in church when you were little say things to you like, you know, sit down and be still and praise God, you know, <laughs> right, stuff like that. You know, I mean, it's just—it's the truth. You know, you—if you, you acted—if you acted happy in church, you're going to get in trouble, right? No kidding. I remember, you know, being in church, and I, I remember the the. I, I, I didn't go a lot when I was a kid, but but I w- we would go sometimes, and and my, my my grandmother went every single Sunday, and we'd go and we'd sit, and and it was as a little kid, you know, you were afraid to move around much, and you're, you you really didn't know where the boundaries were, and if you, 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 but you certainly knew when you stepped over one, right, and and that's when you know, or or you got the the pinch. Did you ever get that? Um, that, yeah, some of you, it's PTSD coming back right now for uh, many of you when you got the pinch, because if you got the pinch, that was code for you're getting whipped at home, right? Uh, and so, and you know, it was, uh, my mom said one time, uh, actually, my Aunt Julia tells a funny story that, um, that, that uh, I was told one time in church as a little boy to, to whisper, and, and I said, I am, and, and and you know so I that, that that's kind of stuff happened to me right but you know it, it is interesting how we we want God we, we want to praise God and then yet the image we have in our mind of God is this God who's strict and in, 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 in fact in fact uh, you know it was Nietzsche Nietzsche's the the father of of so much modern psychology and atheism. And Nietzsche, Nietzsche was asked one time, why did you, he? He is literally known across the annals of history as the man that, that in, 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 he invented nihilism, and, and so much of atheistic thought comes from that man today. And, and Nietzsche said, they said, why did you not become a Christian? Because your father was a, 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 a bivocational minister, I think the story goes. And this is the answer that Nietzsche gave. One of the brightest minds in human history, the answer he gave was this. I never saw any of the members of my daddy's church having fun. Think about it. It's fascinating. Can you imagine if Nietzsche gotten saved? Can you imagine if that guy came under the power of the Holy Spirit? Whoa. I never saw anybody in my father's church. In fact, I think the actual quote's... The actual quote went, I never saw any of the members of my father's church having a good time. And that's religion. And many of us have eyes of that. You know, today, we're going to talk about how did Jesus confront religion. So I want you to turn in your Bible. How did Jesus confront religion? Because he certainly did. I want you to turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you're on the U version, uh, I'm in the New American Standard. And we're going to do one verse today and one verse only. And here's Matthew chapter 5. So Jesus is on the Sermon on the Mount, and I normally don't put scriptures up there for you, the main scripture, because I really do want you to bring your Bible. I really do, man. And if you don't have a Bible, we have a cart right there that has Bibles. They're free to to take. Please bring. Listen, you need to bring your Bible to church. In fact, anytime I know I'm going to go and uh, listen to a sermon or if I'm going to go to a conference, I always put paper and a pen in my Bible because the Lord's going to speak to me. And it may not have anything to do with what I'm talking about. Sometimes God just gives you thoughts about things. You need to be able to write them down, and man, I, I, man, I just, I, I can't fathom you not, you know, wanting to bring bring your scripture to you. And the main reason I don't, I, you know, if you a lot of you use digital, but I also know when I get boring, and that doesn't happen, but when it does, I know you're going to get on Facebook, right, or check the Titan score or whatever, and that's anathema, and God will get mad at you, and that's when he does get mad, and that's when he does bring the hammer. I'm just telling you, you got to lighten up, okay? We're going to lighten up. You got to lighten up, all right? So, Look at what Jesus is in the Sermon on the Mount. He's gone through the sermon. And then he makes this statement that is really different. Like it's Jesus, it's Jesus front and center looking right at you. We don't don't see Jesus that way. We don't see this side of Jesus. But he says to them, and by the way, scribes and Pharisees are in the crowd that day. Jesus had insane courage. He said for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that's a that is a incredibly bold statement, right? So the, the question we have to ask is, okay, then who were the scribes and who were the Pharisees? I mean, who were these people? Well, I, I broke it down to you because, listen, scribes and Pharisees still walk around among us, okay? They, they change names and faces and they don't wear the long gowns. And, but I'm telling you, every church has scribes and Pharisees, right? And I don't know who you are, but if you're a scribe and a Pharisee is in here today, I'm going to tell you, I'm, be- I'm going to try to make you insanely uncomfortable today. That's my goal. Okay, uh, that's partly a joke. I don't know really what I meant by that, but but let me tell you what, who these guys were. The scribes were the theological uh, authorities, so really they weren't hypocrites. I mean, these guys. They were like the Bible memorization factory. These guys really knew doctrine. They really did, and they were great at it. And, and that was a, that's a good thing, man. Scripture memory, oh, come on. That's a great thing. It's a key thing to you being able to make decisions. And so these guys were the theological authorities, and Jesus really didn't pick fights with them much. He just brought them up quite a bit from time to time. But here, here the Pharisees, now that was a different deal. All right? That was a different deal. The Pharisees were the theological performers. They were the guys that were all about performance. And let me tell you something about Jesus. Go read the New Testament. Jesus never missed an opportunity to body slam these guys in public. All right? He didn't. I mean, he would come off the top rope, whammo, every time he could. And he, and he did. But And he picked fights with them all the time because he, he, it wasn't that he hated the Pharisees. He didn't. He hated what they did to people. He hated how they made people feel, how they made people feel. He hated the destruction that came. And see, this is the thing. Many of you grew up in homes or you've been around homes. You had rules and regulations. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Because the Pharisees were always performing. It was about your performance. Oh, man. Dallas Willard said one time, he said, I believe the greatest form of human misery is spirituality misunderstood and misapplied. The greatest form of human misery is spirituality wrongly understood and wrongly applied. So today, we're going to... Why in the world would Jesus say... Now, because this is the thing you really do got to understand, okay? Listen, I'm going to tell you something. This is going to be a really good sermon, okay? It's going to be... Let me tell you what I mean by that, all right? I don't... Have I ever said that? No, I haven't, okay? I've never said... No, not because of Jason standing up here. Now, I'm telling you, today, if you'll listen to the words of Jesus, there's some of you that are going to get to come home today some of you are going to get to come home today to a god you've never met you knew about him but you didn't you, know, you don't you, you've never met this god and if you'll listen to the words of Jesus not Jason I mean listen to my words yeah but listen to what Jesus is saying some of you are going to get to come home today because you see the scribes and the pharisees they they had this religious order and it's still around we, we, it's really hard to understand, you, you, when you think, when you look right there on that screen that the scribes were the theological authorities and the Pharisees were the theological performers, the executioners, the people that, you know, lived out, they, they would, you know, they were just the, the performance police. Let me tell you why that matters so much. Because when Jesus makes a statement like that, those in the crowd are like, I got, I got no hope. I mean, if the scribes and Pharisees aren't going to make it to heaven, I'm not. There, there's no way. So imagine, let me put it in a modern day, and this is completely unfair, and I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just trying to give you a, an American 2020 vision of what this might look like. Maybe, maybe Jesus might say something like, unless your righteousness exceeds that of seminary professors and book writers and commentary writers, you're never going to make it to heaven. And you're going, but I don't know. I mean, seminary professors are amazing people, and they are. We've got some in this church, gave their whole life to theological education. We've got people in this church, like Dr. Teeley and Dr. Parks and others, like that for me and Brian, and that, that are they are the type of men that made us who we are. So so we look at people like that, and you, you and I, we look at people like that, and we go, but I could never be on that level, right? But these guys... They, 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 did, they had the wrong heart. They had the wrong heart. And I got to be around some amazing seminary professors that had the right heart. Oh man, what that can do. But these guys, scribes and Pharisees, they didn't have the right heart. So what was it about? Why, why were they? But the number one thing Jesus did, he called them all kinds of stuff. He called the Pharisees brood of vipers. That's like snakes, you know? He called the Pharisees in the crowd. He called them sons of hell. Isn't it amazing that in 2020, we talk about this Jesus that's just gentle, never pushes the envelope. He never brings the heat. If you believe that, you've really never read the New Testament because the Jesus that walked the streets of Nazareth was trying to bring people into wholeness. And the scribes and the Pharisees were keeping people from it. And he was mad at what they were doing. And so what he did is he said, you sons of hell, you hypocrites. I mean, he called, but the one word he called them all the time was hypocrites. So what does that mean? What kind of hypocrites were they? Well, they were hypocrites because they conformed on the outside, but they were never transformed on the inside. Now, I want you to make sure you don't miss that. Scribes and Pharisees, but really, I would say, I would say Pharisees for the most part, the performers. They were the people that they were conformed on the outside, but they, they never did transform on the inside. So see, did you, ever, did you ever grow up in a home where you had to conform? Don't raise your hand. Do you, you ever grow up in a, in a home where you had to conform? Like all these things that mom or dad said, you, hey, you can, look, whatever you do, do this and do this and, and, what, and whatever, you better never do that. But mom, where is that in Joshua? It's not. Where is that in, you know, Malachi? It's not. Where is that in Luke and Galatians? It's not. But it's in my house and you better never do it. Right? You know what I'm talking about, right? We got counselors ready at the end of this service for you. If You know, some of you having flashbacks. I can see you just rolling over right now. It's my mom. That's how I can hear my mom right now. I can hear. My, I can hear my uncle. You know that kind of stuff. Oh, they weren't bad people. No. They were just afraid of what would happen if you didn't follow the rules. And Jesus said something. Look, they conformed on the outside, but they were never transformed on the inside. Look at this verse in Luke. It said Jesus, in talking about the Pharisees one day, he said, you are those, talking about the Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your heart, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Do you see the performance? You like, the, you like to be starchy and have the, the great suits, and you like the prominent places at the banquet table, and you wear your phylacteries, your, your garments longer with bigger, brighter colors, so that nobody's going to mistake that you are a theological authority right they loved the attention they loved the they craved it they craved the, the attention and they were performers they, they see Pharisees they made the rules the path to God don't miss that if you really want to understand the New Testament I'm serious if you really want to understand the New Testament let me help you with something you got to understand that a lot of what Jesus first sermon in the first 30 seconds what does he say you think this isn't a big deal what does he say in the first 30 seconds? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you're never going to make it to heaven, right? You think it's not a big, a big deal? So, so why does he say that? Here's the thing that, that changes in the New Testament. For the scribes and the Pharisees, I want you to imagine in your mind right now, I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine a path. I don't know, through the woods, down the street, whatever. You just imagine a path, Okay. And on the, at the end of that path is God, okay? At the end of that path is God. And the, the path that you got to take is, at the end of that path is God. And so, therefore, that path can only be walked by keeping the rules. You see, for the Pharisees, the path to God was found in the rules. And if you couldn't keep the rules, well, that's why they loved it. Because the more rules they could make, the more they could keep them. And they could keep the rules, and you couldn't. Shame, shame, shame. And so they, they would put you in your... That's when Jesus said, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you tie up heavy burdens on men's backs. Look in Matthew when he goes into the woes. You tie up heavy burdens on people's backs, but you yourselves won't lift a finger to help them. Jesus, that's a quote from Jesus. You won't even help. You make all these rules, but you won't help them alleviate the suffering. You actually create suffering. So you see, here's what... So G, in, in walks Jesus... And Jesus comes on the scene, and he says, how about this, fellas? I'm going to make a new rule. You ready? I am the rule. I'm the rule. Well, see, when you take away the rules, stay with me now. This is the heart of the New Testament. When you take away the rules, they didn't know what to do. Because their whole life had been about order. And rules and conformity. And when Jesus said, "No, no, no, no," we're the way the, that path to God—that's me. I'm the path. So we're going to make the new rule. It's going to be called a relationship. So when that relationship becomes the path, well, now you got to kill him. Now you got to kill him because he just exploded the only way they knew how to get to God. For the Pharisees, the rules were the relationship. That's how you made God smile. That's how you make God smile. And Jesus said, no, no, no. You couldn't keep the rules if you wanted to. So what we're going to do is we're going to put me in the place of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, That's what happens. And so that's why you see the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 use words like, my prayer is that you would know him. You see, that word know is not know about him. That word know is not read more books on Jesus. That word know in the most true form of the Greek language is an experiential know. Like, you know, for instance, right now, the president of the United States. I could go up to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Hello, I'd like to see President Trump. You know, he built, I could tell all of these things. that he, He's built towers and golf courses, and here's been his history, and I could be like a walking Wikipedia and rattling off all that I know about him. There's only one problem. Problem is they're going to say, uh, he didn't know you. No, but I know all about him. Like, I, I got all of his history. I got all the facts. I got all the stuff. But yeah, problem is, you got about six seconds. Then it's going to get really bad on you <laughs> unless you leave here, right? I don't know him. He doesn't know me. I just know about him. But I can pick up the phone, and I can go see the governor, Lee. Why? Because I actually know him. And he knows me. And there's a relationship there. And I can can go out to the residence and and they'll let me in. Why? Because I actually know him. You see, so many of you, you've known about God. Many of you today are going to get to come home to a God that wants to know you. Paul wanted us to know God. The Pharisees, were, they were... They were so pure when it came to appearance, but they were rotten when it came to purity. They were pure in appearance, but they were rotten when it came to purity, and Jesus called them hypocrites. He also, he, 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 one of the things he did, he, he called them blind guides. This, this is my all-time favorite verse. This is probably my all-time favorite verse when Jesus was railing on the Pharisees. He said, you blind guides, you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. Let me tell you what, that's, if this were a Hebrew crowd, you guys would be rolling with laughter right now. That is an awesome joke. And I get, you know, among preachers, there's times that, you know, I've been railed on a little bit, you know, because, you know, I I make jokes. Let me tell you something. Jesus was funny. So I'm falling after Jesus. That's my excuse. Um, Jesus, when he says, you blind guides, you strain at a gnat. So a gnat was considered unclean and so was a camel, okay? Often in a glass of wine, gnats would fall into the wine. And so if they touched a camel, they couldn't go to church the next week. You know? Don't touch camels. You know, it's one of the they had all these rules, man. So don't don't touch camels. But if you accidentally got a gnat in your wine and didn't know it, well, you couldn't go to church either, if you will, right? So they were known, wait for it, tell me that we're not all stupid and crazy. They would drink, they would drink their wine, and here's how they would, they would close their teeth like a filter, and they'd go, they would sip their their wine, so that they would strain a potential gnat. But Jesus is going, yeah, but you're swallowing camels. That's funny. (laughs) That's really funny. And so the, the issue related to it is that you love the rules. You love the rules. You're pure in appearance. You're rotten in heart. So now you see, now you see, now you see why Jesus would make statements in the Sermon on the Mount like, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Makes sense now, doesn't it? Yeah. He called them hypocrites. Why did he call them hypocrites? Well, another reason he called them hypocrites was because they were were self-centered, you see, actually, the, the, the words Pharisee, it implies separatists. They were very separated. They loved their status, right? They loved their status. And I want to I spend some time for a second um, going into this today. Because this is a big deal in modern Christianity. And I, and I want to talk about it for just a second. They made theology what I would call an end unto itself. It wasn't that they didn't just love people. They loved the doctrine itself. And I I want to say something to you as Baptists, and this is, you know, I don't know who this is for, but from time to time, I've just got to deal with something from the pulpit, and I'm going to deal with something today, just a little bit, okay? Um, Most of you could care less. I think you're the better for it, really. But there are those of you, that, that do read a lot of theology and you do read and you study this stuff and, and I'm glad you do. You're growing your mind. And, you know, I, I read now probably more than I ever have. I study now more than probably I ever have. And so, so I, but I, there's been a movement. But I want to tackle something. Because we obviously, according to Dylan Sherlock, we have like 2 million people that listen to the podcast every week. And a lot of those are the theological elite of this land. That's not true. Um, but But I want to say that maybe some of you this might help. And it might not even be anybody in the room. It might be somebody in podcast land that just needs to hear it. In the last 15 years, there's been a rise in the Southern Baptist Convention of what we call Reformed theology. Okay? A huge, huge, huge rise in Reformed theology. Okay? Not going to go into It's Calvinism. I'm just looking up and it's i've got a lot of friends that are reformed. In fact, on the doctoral level a lot of my professors were reformed. In fact, looking back on it, a lot of my professors on the MDiv level were 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 reformers. And that was no that was no problem. I didn't have a problem with that at all. I don't have a problem with that at all. But let me tell you what's happening in the pew. Is what's happening with a lot of young reformers, what we they're called neo-calvinists, the the young guys that are coming up in calvinism. What's happening in our Southern Baptist churches is that Reformed theology has become an exclusivity factor. It's become something that it's a club. It's a way to measure the sheep from the goats. And let me tell you something. I'm not willing to be measured by you. I'm not. I'm not willing to let you tell me that that Because that's what Pharisees did. Pharisees said, you know what? I will love you. Listen, I will love you when you come over to the cool kids club. And I'm not going to play you. I'm not playing your game. I'm just not. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Because, and let me tell you how it manifests itself. And I'm not picking on anybody. But I want to tell you something. If I don't tell you about this stuff, some of you are going to fall into it and not know it. So, So... you hear buzzwords. In the, in the 80s, if I had stepped up in a Southern Baptist church, that, you know what? Truth be told, confession is good for the soul. I've done this because I speak to a lot of different crowds. And sometimes you're trying to make connection pretty quick. So, you know, when you roll up into the Yankees area in New York, you wear a Yankees cap and everybody knows you're, you're good people or something, right? So in the 80s, I could have I said, um, I could have stood up in a Southern Baptist church and I could have said, Let's, I, this is all I would have had to say in the Southern Baptist Church. Let's open God's infallible, inerrant word. Just saying that alone, let the congregation know he must be okay. That's a code word, because it means he believes in the word of God, right? Well, there's all kinds of code words now in Baptist life, and there are people are using them to separate the sheep from the goats. And I'm saying it's wrong. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm saying it's wrong. And the reason I'm saying it's wrong is because we are never called to use theology as a dividing line. We're not. We're not called to use it as a dividing line. Are we going to lower our biblical standards? Never. Never. But w- there's no way that... that, that and, and so you hear buzzwords now, like everything's prefaced by gospel. Gospel this, gospel that. Gospel this, gospel that. Gospel baseball, that's gospel parenting. Gospel football, gospel money, gospel. And, and let me tell you, I want to say something to you, friends, and for anybody willing to listen. And you know what? I would go ahead, share this on Facebook if you want to. This is good. I mean it. Share this whole sermon on Facebook. I would love for every one of these people that are doing this mess to listen. I mean it, 100%. Because, because he, here's, here's the deal the gospel is not a theory. The gospel is a person. The gospel is a person who bled and died. It is not a theory. And I don't know what happened in the last 15 years in Baptist life, but I'm going to tell you, I don't know how it happened, but I know how we can correct it. And it's simply this, that there was a place in time where discipleship became scholarship. And you know what I saw yesterday? I saw old men and young men, small business owners and retirees. I saw women standing beside men. I saw Hispanics st- on equipment. I saw people on tractors. I saw people grabbing things and moving things. I, you know what I saw? I saw discipleship with boots on it, with boots on it. I saw discipleship. I, see, I get to see it often in people like Tommy Campsie and Bobby and Tammy, Bob and Tammy Ogle. When we do our homeless ministry here, that is discipleship with love on it, boots on it. And see, that's why Jesus got hammered. Because if you notice in the, Old, in the New Testament, he was always getting railed because your Savior eats with sinners. Yeah, these people were self-centered. See, Paul, Paul said this. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, let's look at the next one. Yeah, yeah. Paul said, knowledge puffs you up with pride, but love builds up. See, what's happening here is that theology in and of itself was becoming an end game. Don't miss that. Are we to study theology? Yes. Are we supposed to grow in our knowledge of God? Absolutely. Are we supposed to shun academia? Never. No, but that's not the point. It's the what do you want to do with it? See, Paul, he said of himself, I mean, when it came to a Pharisee, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Jew of Jews. I mean, this guy was as academic as it got. And that's the man that said, I'm telling you, but if, if the end game is to separate yourself from everybody else, then all you're going to become is arrogant. It's so all you're going to become is arrogant. And so what happens to the church when we have these dividing lines, we have got who gets to be in the cool kids club. What happens when we have these, what's the harm in the church out here in the normal everyday church all across America? I'll tell you what the harm is. The harm is that we talk a whole lot about grace, but we don't know how to give it. Because you see, the dividing line is unless you Come over to me and be like me and act like me and talk like me. That's when I'll love you. Are we going to lower our biblical standards? Never. But I want to tell you something we'll also never do at Clearview Baptist Church. My theological beliefs have no filter when it comes to if I'm going to love you or not. Did you hear me? My theological beliefs have no filter when it comes to if I'm going to love you or not no, I'm going to love you and I'm going to disagree with you. And and there may be times I disagree with you radically, but I get to decide if I love you, not you. I get to decide if I love you, not you. And so Jesus came to love. He didn't back off. In fact, in fact, I would say that Jesus fulfilled a lot of what love was about and they didn't like it because their motives were themselves in the end. Now, I want to move on because I want to touch on one other thing. Let's skip past it. Let's go to the third hypocrite. I'm going to skip a verse there. There we go. Jesus called them hypocrites because they were satisfied working for God instead of being hungry for God. And that's a big deal. They were satisfied just doing the work, but they actually were never hungry. I went to Alaska many times in, uh, in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, up to about 2010. And let me tell you what Alaska did for me. Alaska made it to where I could never eat salmon again. I'm serious. Because once you've caught salmon in the Kenai River, and then you eat it that night, you just realize I'm not eating salmon raised on a farm in Alabama. It just tastes different. I, I can't even tell you how it tastes. I can't describe it. Once you've tasted the real thing, it's really hard. Because you now, But you know what? I used to never know the difference, right? I used to never know the difference until I went and got the real thing. And when I got the real thing, I couldn't eat the other stuff. And I'm not a snob. I've just had different. And so what does that mean? You see, many of you tasted religion, but you've never... You grew up around religion. you've never tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You've never tasted it. You've never tasted a spirit-filled life. So, so now you understand why Jesus said, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. The Pharisees didn't hunger and thirst for righteousness. They hungered and thirst for the work Jesus said, no, I want you to hunger and thirst for the righteousness that I'm talking about. So how did Jesus confront religion? What did he do? How how did Jesus confront? I'll tell you how he confronted. He broke it. He broke it. He totally broke it. He redeemed all everything about it, and now God was accessible. You see the Sermon on the Mount was his first sermon, and so now God is accessible all of a sudden he 's accessible He can be he 's a fulfillment of the law in jeremiah thirty one I think it is yeah jeremiah thirty one look at what the Lord says, I will put my law where within them on the inside, and I will put my law on their heart, and I will write it there, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Oh man, do you see what he's prophesying or what's about to happen? He's saying there's coming a day when a man from born and, and walking the land is going to take on the name Jesus. And he's going to come on the inside and he's going to transform you from the inside out. And that's the difference. So Jesus actually fulfilled it. He, he moved it from religion to relationship. He moved it. So I want to leave you this morning with a simple understanding that when my religion replaces my relationship, my ruin is not far. When my religion replaces my relationship, my ruin is not far. It's not far off because you, it's easy to mistake one for the other. I've been reading a book recently about uh, an awakening that happened in 1949 in Scotland. And, uh, and this is a picture of the, the Harris Islands. Uh, Harris Tweed is made there, if you've ever... Uh, in the Hebrides. Now, that doesn't look like very welcoming country. Oh, it looks like something you'd like to maybe go see for about 10 minutes. But I can promise you, that's rough country. That's rough country. The, Her- the, the Isle of Harris and the Isle of Lewis and the Hebrides on the outer banks of Scotland, out in the moors there. And, and there was a great awakening that took place in 1949. And... On that island, there's a man. Do we have a picture of Duncan Campbell? Isn't there a picture? Yeah, Duncan Campbell was uh, uh, the minister. And now he was not from there, but but he was a man that God used for that awakening. And I've been reading a few books on this thing, and I'm gonna tell you what, man. It, now, if look at Duncan Campbell, you, you think that? I mean, I don't, I've never met Duncan Campbell, but he was a, a Scottish. He was a, uh, no, he was a, an, Ang- I think he was an Anglican priest. He was a reformed, reformed Anglican, I think. Translation, he did not lack starch. All right? He didn't lack starch. Some of you are going to get that on Thursday. All right? So Duncan Campbell is a guy that is seeing God do in- incredible things on these islands when people had to take little ferries and get across the moors and, and places. And he, and he talked about how this is, you know, electricity was very, you know, wasn't that much of it there in, in those days. And and he, he talked about how all of a sudden people were getting saved, but outside the church, like in the moors, in the fields, because that's where a lot of wool comes from. And he begins to tell the story in these books about how men and women on the roadsides, would you just walk down the road and there'd be somebody laying on their face before God, begging for mercy. No preacher had talked to them. Nobody had come up to them. They literally, literally, God was moving across those islands. Why? I don't know, but he was. So Duncan Campbell got a letter and said, would you come help us? And so he shows up and then whammo, in a barn one night, the revival broke out. But Duncan Campbell, one of the stories he told that I read just this week blew me away. People used lanterns back in those days. And before we go to the next picture, this was the imagery in my head. So you see what it would look like. That's a picture of the Harris Islands right there. Look at how hard that terrain would be. They didn't have, a lot of them didn't have cars. Most of them walked. They didn't have cars. And he said, prayer meetings would go on to two and three in the morning for months and months and months. Don't ever complain about my preaching. Two and three in the morning. They would dismiss. Hear somebody praying. Come back in pray for two more hours. The Lord was sweeping across the islands. And he said, One night, about 2 in the morning, he goes out after a prayer meeting, and and this is kind of what he described, that all over the moors he sees candles and lanterns. It's people walking. They didn't have telecommunications. They didn't have Twitter and Snapchat. They didn't have all these ways to let people know there was an awakening happening. People were waking up in the middle of the night wanting to go to the house of God that never wanted to go there before. And he said, he went out one one particular night and he said, I look out and all over the moors I just see candles. People are walking across the moors at two in the morning. It's cold in northern Scotland if you've never been there. Now why would I tell you that story? You don't hear about that stuff anymore. And many of you think it's just a story because you know why you've never seen it and you never heard it and you don't understand it you just you don't have any frame of reference for it you don't you know many of you have never been able to be hungry for something like that it's like me and Alaskan salmon all you've ever tasted was one way of doing church and that is coming on Sunday and doing and it's good it's nothing bad it's just you you come to church and you do the thing and that's what you're going to do next week and you're going to do it 5 years from now and you're going to do it till the lord calls you home but i'm going to tell you I have seen it. Let me tell you one of the greatest things that ever happened to me in my life, and I didn't realize it at the time, but one of the greatest things God ever did for me was I literally came to Jesus. My soul was redeemed. I was transformed by God. And I didn't know it, but my little church was on the front end of an awakening. And we'd have about 50 people on Sunday morning. We had an upright piano that sat over there and an organ, not a Brett Warren organ, but like just, I mean, like a funeral home organ that those, the sad ones, you know? And it sat over there. In fact, she got mad and left because we clapped one Sunday. I think that's how it went. I'm I'm dead serious. So we had an upright piano and hymn books, and that's it. And I'm going to tell you something. For over three years, I watched family after family. I didn't know what it meant. I thought this is how you're supposed to do church. That's all all I knew. Family after family walked aisles, get saved. I saw people on the brink of divorce because I grew up in that town and I knew stories. I saw people come up there and get in their marriage, get redeemed, weeping on the altar of God. And let me tell you what I didn't know. I didn't know how formative that would be for Jason Cruz. Because you see, had I not seen that, I would have been like many of you. I would have been like you that said, you know what? I, I, I guess that stuff's gone now. It's not gone, friend. It's not gone. You know what? We can experience that at Clearview too. We can experience that at Clearview too, but I want to tell you, there's an arresting power that has to happen. And that's what happened in the Harris Islands. God arrested people. The theme that kept coming where people were crying out for mercy because here's what Duncan Campbell knew. That the Scottish Islands, the Harris Islands, you know what they had? They had religion. Listen, they had religion. They had tons of religion. They did not have a redeemer relationship. They didn't. They didn't have it. And so God began to sweep across that island. And I'm telling you, I have seen that with my own eyes. I've watched people repent. I've watched students get right with God and join ministry. I was one of them. I watched students get saved, become preachers. It was more than just me. I saw it with my own eyes. I did. I I know what it's like for students to be out in the algebra class in high school and middle school talking about the Lord to their teacher, I was there. I saw what can happen when people begin to repent. We look at repentance as this thing that's, you know, this vile, like, nastiness that we have to come and just, like, crawl down here, you know, and not lift. Our, I'm telling you, let me tell you what repentance is, friends. Repentance is something really simple. It's when you don't want to go another hour without the power of God on your life. You don't want to go another hour. You don't want another day, another hour. You don't want to go another hour. So what some of you have got to do is you got to understand that Jesus, what he did, what he did was he broke religion. He broke it so that you could have an awakening. He broke it. And some of you need to go back. I'm coming back, chapel people. Don't freak out. Um, They get crazy when I walk off the stage. Some of you need to understand that when Jesus talks about your righteousness exceeding that of the Pharisees, you got to understand what he did so that you could experience life. Some of you today, you've been going to church most of your life, but here's what you haven't done. It's been a long time, maybe never. Till you've gone back in your mind to a bald hill where a Roman soldier put nails in a man's hands while everybody watched. So that you could have life. Some of you get to come home today. You know, you often don't think about sharing something with somebody like a tweet or an email or sending them a sermon or sending them a podcast. You don't often think of that as missions, but it is. It's not that you have to send it to the whole world or post every single thing we do at Clearview on your feed. But if, if you've heard a sermon or if you've listened to a podcast, think through your life. I mean, God, who needs to hear this? Sometimes it, it, it doesn't need to go on your Facebook page. Sometimes it needs to go on your Twitter. But sometimes just a simple text to one person can make all the difference in the world. Is sending them the word of God in real time. Share it. You'd be surprised how far it goes.